Welcome to the Weird and Loathsome Podcast. I am your pseudonymous host, Brian K. DeVille. The following is part two of a two-part reading of The Bottle Imp by Robert Louis Stevenson. Enjoy. It rained. His horse went heavily. He looked up at the black mouths of the caves, and he envied the dead that slept there and were done with trouble, and called to mind how he had galloped by the day before and was astonished. So he came down to Hukina, and there was all the country gathered for the steamer as usual. In the shed before the store they sat and jested and passed the news but there was no manner of speech in Kiawe's bosom, and he sat in their midst and looked without on the rain falling on the houses and the surf beating among the rocks, and the sighs arose in his throat. Kiawe of the bright house is out of spirits, said one to another. Indeed, and so he was, and little wonder. Then the hall came, and the whaleboat carried him on board. The after part of the ship was full of Haoles, who had been to visit the volcano as their custom is, and the midst was crowded with Kanakas, and the forepart with wild bulls from Hilo, and the horses from Kao. But Kiawe sat apart from all in his sorrow, and watched for the house of Kianu. There is set, low upon the shore in the black rocks and shaded by the cocoa palms, there by the door was a red haluku, no greater than a fly, and going to and fro with a fly's business. Ah, queen of my heart, he cried, I'll venture my dear soul to win you. Soon after, darkness fell, and the cabins were lit up, and the Howleys sat and played at cards and drank whiskey as their custom is. But Kiawe walked the deck all night, and all the next day as they steamed under the lee of Maui or of Molokai, and he was still pacing to and fro like a wild animal in a menagerie. Towards evening they passed Diamond Head and came to the pier of Honolulu, Kiawe stepped out among the crowd and began to ask for Lopaka. It seemed he had become the owner of a schooner, none better in the islands, and was gone upon an adventure as far as Pola Pola or Kahiki. So there was no help to be looked for from Lopaka. Kiawe called to mind a friend of his, a lawyer in the town, I must not tell his name, and inquired of him. They said he was grown suddenly rich and had a fine new house upon the Waikiki shore, and this put a thought in Kiawe's head, and he called a hack and drove to the lawyer's house. The house was all brand new, and the trees in the garden no greater than walking sticks, and the lawyer, when he came, had the air of a man well pleased. What can I do to serve you? said the lawyer. 
You are a friend of Lopaka's, replied Kiawe, and Lopaka purchased from me a certain piece of goods that I thought you might enable me to trace. The lawyer's face became very dark. I do not profess to misunderstand you, Mr. Kiawe, said he, though this is an ugly business to be stirring in. You may be sure I know nothing, but yet I have a guess, and you would apply in a certain quarter I think you might have news. And he named the name of a man, which again I had better not repeat. And so it was for days, and Kiawe went from one to another, finding everywhere new clothes and carriages and fine new houses and men everywhere in great contentment, although, to be sure, when he hinted at his business their faces would cloud over. No doubt I am upon the track, thought Kiawe. These new clothes and carriages are all the gifts of the little imp. These glad faces are the faces of men who have taken their profit and got rid of the accursed thing in safety. When I see pale cheeks and hear sighing, I shall know I am near the bottle. So it befell at last that he was recommended to a haole in Britannia Street. When he came to the door, about the hour of the evening meal, there were the usual marks of the new house and the young garden and the electric light shining in the windows. But when the owner came, a shock of hope and fear ran through Kiawe, for here was a young man white as a corpse, and black about the eyes, the hair shedding from his head, and such a look in his countenance as a man may have when he is waiting for the gallows. Here it is, to be sure, thought Kiawe, and so with this man he no way failed his errand. I am come to buy the bottle, said he, at the word the young Howley of Britannia Street reeled against the wall. The bottle, he gasped, to buy the bottle. Then he seemed to choke, and seizing Kiawe by the arm, carried him into a room and poured out wine in two glasses. Here is my respects, said Kiawe, who had been much about with the Howleys in his time. Yes, he added, I am come to buy the bottle. What is the price by now? At that word, the young man let his glass slip through his fingers and looked upon Kiawe like a ghost. The price, says he. The price, you don't, you don't know the price. It is for that I am asking you, returned Kiawe. But why are you so much concerned? Is there anything wrong about the price? Uh, it has dropped a great deal in value since your time, Mr. Kiawe, said the young man, stammering. Well, well, I shall have the less to pay for it, said Kiawe. How much did it cost you? The young man was white as a sheet. Two cents, said he. What? cried Kiawe. Two cents? Why, then you can sell it only for one, and he who buys it. The words died upon Kiawe's tongue. He who bought it could never sell it again. 
The bottle and the bottle imp must abide with him until he died. And when he died, he must carry it with him to the red end of hell. The young man of Britannia Street fell upon his knees. For God's sake, buy it, he cried. You can have all my fortune in the bargain. I was mad when I bought it at that price. I had embezzled money at my store. I, I was lost. I would have gone to jail. Poor creature, said Kiawe. You would risk your soul upon so desperate an adventure. And to avoid the proper punishment of your own disgrace, and you think I could hesitate with love in front of me. Give me the bottle and the change which I make sure you have already. Here is a five-cent piece. It was as Kiawe supposed. The young man had the change ready in a drawer. The bottle changed hands, and Kiawe's fingers were no sooner clasped upon the stalk than he had breathed his wish to be a clean man. And sure enough, when he got home to his room and stripped himself before a glass, his flesh was whole like an infant's. And here was the strange thing. He had no sooner seen this miracle than his mind was changed within him, and he cared not for the Chinese evil, and little enough for Kokua, and had but one thought, that here he was bound to the bottle imp for time and for eternity, and had no better hope but to be a cinder forever in the flames of hell. Away ahead of him he saw them blaze in his mind's eye, and his soul shrank and darkness fell upon the light. When Kiawe came to himself a little, he was aware it was the night when the band played at the hotel. Thither he went because he feared to be alone, and there among happy faces walked to and fro, and heard the tunes go up and down, and saw Berger beat the measure, and all the while he heard the flames crackle, and saw the red fire burning in the bottomless pit. Of a sudden the band played Hiki Ao Ao. That was the song he had sung with Kokua, and at the strain courage returned to him. It is done now, he thought, and once more let me take the good along with the evil. So it befell that he returned to Hawaii by the first steamer, and as soon as it could be managed he was wedded to Kokua, and carried her up the mountainside to the bright house. Now it was so with these two, that when they were together, Kiawe's heart was stilled, but so soon as he was alone he fell into a brooding horror, and heard the flames crackle, and saw the red fire burn in the bottomless pit. The girl, indeed, had come to him wholly. Her heart leapt in her side at sight of him. Her hand clung to his, and she was so fashioned from the hair upon her head to the nails upon her toes that none could see her without joy. She was pleasant in her nature. She had the good word always. Full of song she was, and went to and fro in the bright house, the brightest thing in its three stories, caroling like the birds. And Kiawe beheld and heard her with delight, 
and then must shrink upon one side and weep and groan to think upon the price he had paid for her. And then he must dry his eyes, wash his face, and go and sit with her on the broad balconies, joining her in songs, and with a sick spirit, answering her smiles. There came a day when her feet began to be heavy, and her songs more rare. And now it was not Kiawe only that would weep apart, but each would sunder from the other and sit in opposite balconies with the whole width of the bright house between. Kiawe was so sunk in his despair, he scarce observed the change, and was only glad he had more hours to sit alone and brood upon his destiny, and was not so frequently condemned to pull a smiling face on a sick heart. But one day, coming softly through the house, he heard the sound of a child sobbing, and there was Kokua rolling her face upon the balcony floor and weeping like the lost. You do well to weep in this house, Kokua, he said. Yet I would give the head off my body. You at least might have been happy. Happy, she cried. Yahweh, when you lived alone in your bright house, you were the word of the island for a happy man. Laughter and song were in your mouth, and your face was as bright as the sunrise. Then you wedded poor Kukua, and the good God knows what is amiss in her. But from that day you have not smiled, she cried. What ails me? I thought I was pretty. I knew I loved you. What ails me that I could throw this cloud upon my husband? Poor Kukua, said Kiawe. He sat down by her side and sought to take her hand, but that she plucked away. Poor Kukua, he said again. My poor child, my darling. I thought all this while to spare you. Well, you shall know all. Then, at least, you will pity poor Kiawe. Then you will understand how much he loved you in the past, that he dared hell for your possession, and how much he still loves you, that he can yet call up a smile when he beholds you. With that, he told her all, even from the beginning. You have done this for me? Ah, well, then what do I care? And she clasped and wept upon him. Ah, child, said Kiawe, and yet, when I consider the fire of hell, I care a good deal. Never tell me, said she. No man can be lost because he loved Kakua and no other fault. I tell you, Kiawe, I shall save you with these hands or perish in your company. What? You loved me and gave your soul, and you think I will not die to save you in return? Oh, my dear, you might die a hundred times, and what difference would that make? He cried. Except to leave me lonely till the time of my damnation. You know nothing, said she. I was educated in school 
in Honolulu. I am no common girl, and I tell you I shall save my lover. What is this you say about assent? But all the world is not America. In England they have a piece they call a farthing, which is about half a cent. Oh, sorrow, she cried. That makes it scarcely better, for the buyer must be lost, and we shall find none so brave as my Kiawe. But then there is France. They have a small coin there which they call a centime, and these go five to the cent or thereabout. We could not do better. Come, Kiawe, let us go to the French islands. Let us go to Tahiti as fast as ships can bear us. There we have four centimes, three centimes, two centimes, one centime, four possible sails to come and go on, and two of us to push the bargain. Come, my Kiawe, kiss me and banish care. Kokua will defend you. Gift of God, he cried. I cannot think that God will punish me for desiring aught so good. Be it as you will, then. Take me where you please. I put my life and my salvation in your hands. Early the next day, Kakua was about her preparations. She took Kiawe's chest that he went with sailoring, and first she put the bottle in a corner, and then packed it with the richest of the clothes and the bravest of the knick-knacks in the house. For said she, we must seem to be rich folks, or who will believe in the bottle? All of the time of her preparation she was as gay as a bird. Only when she looked upon Kiawe the tears would spring in her eyes, and she must run and kiss him. As for Kiawe, a light was off his soul, now that he had his secret shared and some hope in front of him. He seemed like a new man. His feet went lightly on the earth, and his breath was good to him again. Yet was terror still at his elbow, and ever and again, as the wind blows out a taper, hope died in him, and he saw the flames toss, and the red fire burn in hell. It was given out in the country that they were going pleasuring to the States, which was thought a strange thing, and yet not so strange as the truth, if any could have guessed it. So they went to Honolulu in the hall, and thence in the Umatia to San Francisco with a crowd of Haolis, and at San Francisco took their passage by the male brigantine, the bird tropic for Papati, the chief place of the French in the South Islands. Thither they came after a pleasant voyage on a fair day of the trade wind, and saw the reef with the surf breaking and Mautuiti with its palms, and the schooner riding with inside, and the white houses of the town low down along the shore among green trees, and overheard the mountains and the clouds of Tahiti, the wise island. It was judged the most wise to hire a house, which they did accordingly, opposite the British consuls, to make a great parade of money, and themselves conspicuous with carriages and horses. This was very easy to do, so long as they had the bottle in their possession, for Kokua was more bold than Kiawe, and whenever she had a mind, called on the imp for twenty or a hundred dollars. At this rate they grew soon to be remarked in the town, and the strangers from Hawaii, their riding and their driving, 
The fine holukus and the rich lace of kokua became the matter of much talk. They got on well after the first with the Tahitian language, which is indeed like to the Hawaiian, with a change of certain letters. And as soon as they had any freedom of speech began to push the bottle, you are to consider it is not an easy subject to introduce. It was not easy to persuade people you are in earnest. It was necessary besides to explain the dangers of the bottle, and either people disbelieved the whole thing and laughed, or they thought more of the darker part, became overcast with gravity, and drew away from Kiawi and Kokua, as from persons who had dealings with the devil. So far from gaining ground, these two began to find they were avoided in the town. The children ran away from them, screaming, a thing intolerable to Kokua. Catholics crossed themselves as they went by, and all persons began with one accord to disengage themselves from their advances. Depression fell upon their spirits. They would sit at night in their new house after a day's weariness and not exchange one word, or the silence would be broken by Kokua bursting suddenly into sobs. Sometimes they would pray together, sometimes they would have the bottle out upon the floor and sit all evening watching how the shadow hovered in the midst. At such times they would be afraid to go to rest. It was long ere slumber came to them, and if either dozed off it would be to wake and find the other silently weeping in the dark, or perhaps to wake alone, the other having fled from the house and the neighborhood of that bottle to pace under the bananas in the little garden, or to wander on the beach by moonlight. One night it was so when Kakua awoke. Kiawe was gone. She felt in the bed, and his place was cold. Then fear fell upon her, and she sat up in bed. A little moonshine filtered through the shutters. The room was bright, and she could spy the bottle on the floor. Outside it blew high, the great trees of the avenue cried aloud, and the fallen leaves rattled in the veranda. In the midst of this, Kakua was aware of another sound, whether of a beast or a man she could scarce tell, but it was as sad as death and cut her to the soul. Softly she arose, set the door ajar, and looked forth in the moonlit yard. There, under the bananas lay Kiawe, his mouth in the dust, and as he laid, he moaned. It was Kakua's first thought to run forward and console him. Her second potently withheld her. Kiawe had borne himself before his wife like a brave man. It became her little, in the hour of weakness, to intrude upon his shame. With the thought, she drew back into the house. Heavens, she thought, how careless have I been, how weak. It is he, not I, that stands in this eternal peril. It was he, not I, that took the curse upon his soul. It is for my sake and for the love of a creature of so little worth and such poor help that he now beholds so close to him the flames of hell and the smells, the smoke of it, lying without there in the wind and moonlight. I am so dull of spirit that never till now have I surmised my duty. 
or have I seen it before and turned aside? But now at least I take upon my soul in both the hands of my affection. Now I say farewell to the white steps of heaven and the waiting faces of my friends. A love for a love, and let mine be equaled with Kiawe's. A soul for a soul, and be it mine to perish. She was a deft woman with her hands, and was soon apparelled. She took in her hands the change, the precious centimes they kept ever at their side, for this coin is little used, and they had made provision at a government office. When she was forth in the avenue, clouds came on the wind, and the moon was blackened. The town slept, and she knew not whither to turn till she had heard one coughing in the shadows of the trees. Old man, said Kakua, what do you do here abroad in the cold night? The old man could scarce express himself for coughing, but she made out that he was old and poor and a stranger in the island. Will you do me a service, said Kakoa, as one stranger to another, as an old man to a young woman? Will you help a daughter of Hawaii? Ah, said the old man, so you are the witch from the eight islands. Even my old soul you seek to entangle, but I have heard of you and defy your wickedness. Sit down here, said Kakua, and let me tell you a tale. And she told him the story of Kiwai from the beginning to the end. And now, said she, I am his wife, whom he bought with his soul's welfare. And what should I do? If I went to him myself and offered to buy it, he would refuse. But if you go, he will sell it eagerly. I will await you here, you will buy it for four centimes, and I will buy it again for three. And the Lord strengthen a poor girl. If you mean it falsely, said the old man, I think God would strike you dead. He would, cried Kakua. Be sure he would, I could not be so treacherous, God would not suffer it. Give me the four centimes, and await me here, said the old man. Now, when Kikua stood alone in the street, her spirit died. The wind roared in the trees, and it seemed to her the rushing of the flames of hell. The shadow tossed in the light of the lamp, and they seemed to her the snatching hands of evil ones. If she had had the strength, she must have run away. And if she had had the breath, she must have screamed aloud. But in truth, she could do neither, and stood trembling in the avenue like an affrighted child. Then she saw the old man returning, and he had the bottle in his hand. I have done your bidding, said he. I left your husband weeping like a child tonight. He will sleep easy, and he held the bottle forth. Before you give it to me, Kukua panted, ask to be delivered from your cough. I am an old man, 
and too near the gate of the grave to take a favor from the devil. And what is this? Why do you not take the bottle? Do you hesitate? Not hesitate, cried Kokua. I'm only weak. Give me a moment. It is my hand resists. My flesh shrinks back from the accursed thing. One moment only. The old man looked upon Kokua kindly. Poor child, said he. You fear, your soul misgives you. Well, let me keep it. I am old and can never be more happy in this world, and as for the next, give it to me, gasped Kokua. There is your money. Do you think I am so base as that? Give me the bottle. God bless you, child, said the old man. Kokua concealed the bottle under her haluku, said farewell to the old man, and walked off along the avenue she cared not whither, for all roads were now the same to her and led equally to hell. Sometimes she walked and sometimes ran, sometimes she screamed out loud in the night, and sometimes lay by the wayside in the dust and wept. All that she had heard of hell came back to her. She saw the flames blaze, and she smelled the smoke, and her flesh withered on the coals. Near the day she came to her mind again and returned to the house. It was even as the old man said. Kiawe slumbered like a child. Kokua stood and gazed upon his face. Now, my husband, said she, it is your turn to sleep. When you wake, it will be your turn to sing and laugh. But for poor Kokua, alas, that meant no evil. For poor Kokua, no more sleep, no more singing, no more delight, whether in heaven or on earth. With that, she lay down in the bed by his side, and her misery was so extreme that she fell in a deep slumber instantly. Late in the morning, her husband woke and gave her the good news. It seemed he was silly with delight, for he paid no heed to her distress, ill though she dissembled it. The words stuck in her mouth, it mattered not. Kiawe did the speaking. She ate not a bite, but who was to observe it? For Kiawe cleared the dish. Kokua saw and heard him like some strange thing in a dream. There were times when she forgot or doubted, and put her hands to her brow, to know herself doomed and hear her husband babbled, seemed so monstrous. All the while, Kiawe was eating and talking, and planning the time of their return, and thanking her for saving him, and fondling her and calling her the true helper after all. He laughed at the old man that was fool enough to buy that bottle. A worthy old man he seemed, Kiawai said, but no one can judge by appearances. For why did the old reprobate require the bottle? My husband, Kokua said humbly, his purpose may have been good. Kiawe laughed like an angry man. Fiddle dee dee, cried Kiawe. An old rogue, I tell you, and an old ass to boot. 
for the bottle was hard enough to sell at four centimes, and at three it will be quite impossible. The margin is not broad enough, the thing begins to smell of scorching, and he shuddered. It is true, I bought it myself at a cent when I knew not that there were smaller coins. I was a fool for my pains, there will never be found another. And whoever has that bottle now will carry it to the pit. Oh, my husband, cried Kokua, is it not a terrible thing to save oneself by the eternal ruin of another? It seems to me I could not laugh, I would be humbled. I would be filled with melancholy, I would pray for the poor holder. Then Kiawe, because he felt the truth of what she said, grew the more angry. Hidey tighty, cried he. You may be filled with melancholy if you please. It is not the mind of a good wife. If you thought at all of me, you would sit shamed. Thereupon he went out, and Kakua was alone. What chance had she to sell that bottle at two centimes? None, she perceived. And if she had any, here was her husband, hurrying her away to a country where there was nothing lower than a cent. And here, on the morrow of her sacrifice, was her husband leaving her and blaming her. She would not even try to profit by what time she had, but sat in the house, and now had the bottle out and viewed it with an unutterable fear, and now with loathing hid it out of sight. By and by, Kiawe came back and would have her take a drive. My husband, I am ill, she said. I am out of heart. Excuse me, I can take no pleasure. Then was Kiawe more wroth than ever. With her, because he thought she was brooding over the case of an old man, and with himself, because he thought that she was right and was ashamed to be so happy. This is your truth, cried he, and this your affection. Your husband is just saved from eternal ruin, which he encountered for the love of you, and you take no pleasure? Kokua, you have a disloyal heart. He went forth again furious, and wandered in the town all day. He met friends and drank with them, they hired a carriage and drove into the country, and there drank again. All the time, Kiawe was ill at ease, because he was taking this pastime while his wife was sad, and because he knew in his heart that she was more right than he, and the knowledge made him drink the deeper. Now there was an old, brutal Howley drinking with him, one that had been a boatswain of a whaler, a runaway, a digger in gold mines, a convict in prisons. He had a low mind and a foul mouth. He loved to drink and to see others drunken, and he pressed the glass upon Kiawe. Soon there was no more money in the company. Here you are, says the boatswain. You are rich. You have always been saying, you have a bottle or some foolishness? Yes, said Kiawe. 
I, I am rich. I will go back and get some money from my wife who keeps it. That's a bad idea, mate, said the bosun. Never you trust a petticoat with dollars. They're all as false as water. You keep an eye on her. Now this word struck in Kiawe's mind, for he was muddled with what he had been drinking. I should not wonder, but she was false indeed, thought he. Why else would she be so cast down at my release? But I will show her I am not the man to be fooled. I will catch her in the act. Accordingly, when they were back in town, Kiawe bade the boatswain wait for him at the corner by the old calaboose, and went forward up the avenue alone to the door of his house. The night had come again. There was a light within, but never a sound and Kiawe crept about the corner, opened the back door softly, and looked in. There was Kakua on the floor, the lamp at her side. Before her was a milk-white bottle with a round belly and a long neck, and as she viewed it, Kakua wrung her hands. A long time Kiawe stood and looked in the doorway. At first he was struck stupid, and then fear fell upon him that the bargain had been made amiss, and the bottle had come back to him as it came at San Francisco. And at that his knees were loosened, and the fumes of the wine departed from his head like mists of a river in the morning. And then he had another thought, and it was a strange one that made his cheeks to burn. I must make sure of this, he thought. So he closed the door and went softly round the corner again, and then came noisily in, as though he were but now returned. And lo, by the time he opened the front door, no bottle was to be seen, and Kakua sat in a chair and started up like one wakened out of sleep. I have been drinking all day and making merry, said Kiawe. I have been with good companions, and I now only come back for money, and to return to drink and carouse with them again. Both his face and voice were stern as judgment, but Kakua was too troubled to observe. You do well to use your own, my husband, she said, and her words trembled. Oh, I do well. In all things, said Kiawe, and he went straight to the chest and took out money, but he looked besides in the corner where they kept the bottle, and there was no bottle there. At that the chest heaved upon the floor like a sea bellow, and the house span about him like a wreath of smoke, for he saw he was lost now, and there was no escape. It is what I feared he thought. It is she who bought it. And then he came to himself a little and rose up. But the sweat streamed on his face as thick as the rain and as cold as well water. Kukua, said he, I said to you today what ill became me. Now I return to carouse with my jolly companions. 
and at that he laughed a little quietly. I will take more pleasure in the cup if you forgive me. She clasped his knees in a moment. She kissed his knees with flowing tears. Oh, she cried, I asked but a kind word. Let us never one think hardly of the other, said Kiawe, and was gone out of the house. Now, the money that Kiawe had taken was only some of that store of centime piece they had laid in at their arrival. It was very sure he had no mind to be drinking. His wife had given her soul for him, now he must give his for hers. No other thought in the world was with him. At the corner, by the old calaboose, there was the boatswain waiting. My wife has the bottle, said Kiawe, and unless you help me recover it, there can be no more money and no more liquor tonight. You don't mean to say you're serious about that bottle, cried the boatswain. There's the lamp. Do I look as if I was jesting? That is so, said the boatswain. You look as serious as a ghost. Well then, here are two centimes. You must go to my wife in the house and offer her these for the bottles, which, if I am not much mistaken, she will give you instantly. Bring it to me here, and I will buy it back from you for one. For that is the law with this bottle, that it still must be sold for a less sum. But whatever you do, never breathe a word to her that you have come from me. Maid, I wonder are you making a fool of me, asked the boatswain. It will do you no harm if I am, returned Kiawe. That is so, mate, said the boatswain. And if you doubt me, added Kiawe, you can try it. As soon as you are clear of the house, wish to have your pocket full of money, or a bottle of the best rum, or what you please, and you will see the virtue of the thing. Very well, Kanaka, said the boatswain. I will try, but if you are having your fun out of me, I will take my fun out of you with a belaying pin. So the whaler man went off upon the avenue, and Kiawe stood and waited. It was near the same spot where Kokua had waited the night before, but Kiawe was more resolved and never faltered in his purpose. Only his soul was bitter with despair. It seemed a long time he had to wait before he heard a singing in the darkness of the avenue. He knew the voice to be the bosun's, but it was strange how drunken it appeared upon a sudden. Next, the man himself came stumbling into the light of the lamp. He had the devil's bottle buttoned in his coat. Another bottle was in his hand, and even as he came in view, he raised it to his mouth and drank. You have it, said Kiawe. I see that. Hands off, cried the boatswain, jumping back. Take a step near me and I'll smash your mouth. You thought you could make a cat's paw of me, did you? What do you mean? cried Kiawe. Mean? cried the boatswain. 
This is a pretty good bottle, this is. That's what I mean. How I got it for Tucson team, I can't make out. But I'm sure you shan't have it for one. You, you mean you won't sell? Gasped Kiawe. No, sir, cried the boatswain. But I'll give you a drink of the rum if you like. I tell you, said Kiawe. The man who has that bottle goes to hell. I reckon I'm going anyway, returned the sailor. And this bottle's the best thing to go with I've struck yet. No, sir, he cried again. This is my bottle now, and you can go and fish for another. Can this be true? Kiawe cried. For your own sake, I beseech you, sell it to me. I, I don't value any of your talk, replied the boatswain. You thought I was flat. Now you see I'm not, and there's an end. If you won't have a swallow of the rum, I'll have one myself. Here's your health, and a good night to you. So off he went down the avenue toward town. And there goes the bottle out of the story. But Kiawe ran to Kokua, light as the wind. And great was their joy that night. And great, since then, has been the peace of all their days in the bright house. The proceeding has been part two of a two-part reading of The Bottle Imp by Robert Louis Stevenson, first published in 1891. And now we see that Kokua and Kiawe have successfully bearded the devil not once, but three times. Having gone through the ordeal of purchasing, selling, and then repurchasing once each again, finally selling to the bosun, and leaving the terrible fate attached to the ultimate owner of the bottle and its imp for the bosun. A sailor who seems, in any case, destined for hellfire. This story is a fascinating exploration of the dangers of wish fulfillment, and in that way it is part of a folklore tradition so ancient that it is even meant to include what we generally think of as myths and legends. The somewhat prosaic lesson that one should always be careful what you wish for is familiar to many of us from stories as ancient as that of King Midas, but Greek legends are full of people who look for one thing and ultimately receive it to their own detriment. Not just Midas's golden touch, but the paramour of the god Zeus, Semele, who, upon securing one wish of whatever her heart's desire, chose to see the deity in his full glory, which is enough to reduce a mortal person to cinders. Tithonus, as well, was cursed by having granted his wish for everlasting life, despite the fact that he failed to include that his vitality remain. And while I have seen the story ending with him as a withered husk or transformed into another animal, the lesson is nevertheless apparent. The notion that 
wishes are granted at one's peril, is also continued into the Grimm Brothers folk tales. And in fact, there's a fairly diverse body of stories from the Germanic tradition that address this idea, especially in the fact that there are a number of demons or other unsavory characters, whether it's the devil himself, as in Goethe's Faust, or other demonic beings who offered the boon, we are reminded that nothing comes without a cost, and that the greatest benefits often come, unsurprisingly, with the highest price tag, either eternal damnation or mortal death. And in any case, these are things for which you should be quite wary. Modern horror has taken up this motif as well. Of course, Stevenson could never have become familiar with the story of the monkey paws prior to writing this iteration of the wish-fulfillment story, because it would not be published until after his death in 1902, and written by the author W.W. Jacobs. But it is something that's also familiar with any fans of the Twilight Zone series in an episode written by Rod Serling, in which the man in the bottle, ostensibly understood to be some kind of genie, grants a series of wishes for a well-intentioned shopkeeper and his wife, none of which pan out to their benefit. Sometimes the lesson is that you should be careful what you wish for, in that it's important to remember that the devil is always in the details, but I think the more classic Faustian or monkey's paw trial is the fact that the price will be exacted, and ultimately it will not equal the benefits that one receives. Stevenson's story of the bottle imp, however, is distinct in several ways. For one, the grand tour of the wishes does not feature as a character in the piece at all. Unlike many demons, jinn, genies, or other mischievous granters of wishes, the bottle imp makes only a brief appearance, excused by the fact that it's entirely understandable that no one who owns the bottle would do their mental health any good by spending time looking at its inhabitant. In fact, it is slightly amusing to me that the description of the imp is rather Lovecraftian as simply being hideous enough to keep two close friends from even being able to gather their thoughts to speak together for hours afterwards. Another distinction is the fact that the horror is not something that's dwelt upon very strongly in the story. One needs to give little thought to the curse of Midas to realize that he can neither eat nor drink, and is rapidly coming to the realization that everything you touch turning to gold is entirely the wrong thing to wish for. And again, although it's anachronistic, the story of the monkey paw features wishers who understand that even wishing to have the price exacted from them returned itself is probably more hideous of a cost than they would be willing to pay. And so their final wish is used to wish it all away. And there are certainly horrific elements in the story of the bottle imp. However, Kiawe and Kokua are ultimately held in a kind of suspense, in a terror of an impending doom, rather than having to face horrific consequences in the here and now. Kiawe loses beloved family members in order to attain his property and his beautiful home. But it's not clear if there would be any connection between his finding of true love 
and is contracting leprosy, and there is no toll exacted for the slightly more bold wishes asserted by Kakua in their search for somebody willing to bargain for a son team. Another distinction is that this story has what is ostensibly a happy ending. Midas often is told to escape his fate with only the detriment of being cursed with the ears of an ass, but whether it's Faust or Semele or some other unmindful wisher, the cost is often quite a bit more grave. And in fact, Stevenson's telling of this tale is particularly notable in that all of those who interact with the bottle understand the gravity of their situation, but nevertheless, with the exception of the bosun, they are all successful in gaining the benefit without really having to reckon with the cost beyond the anxiety that they face while they are in possession of a one-way ticket to damnation. So in many ways, the folkloric and fairy tale aspects of the bottle imp help to bring a story of being careful what one wishes for to the conclusion that for the good people, the good-hearted people, such as Kiawe and Kakua, determination and good-heartedness will ultimately lead to a successful and happy end. Another interesting distinction is that the rules for the bottle imp are particularly mechanistic. While it's easy to wonder what would happen in a world of digital currency in which one decimal point can always be added to the value of any coin of any denomination, the rules as they're set forth for our characters in this story are quite clear and ultimately are well heeded by all involved. The setting in the Pacific Islands is also a notable departure from the Teutonic origins of some of the folktales from which Stevenson drew, and I think it's worth mentioning that with the additional research for this ending portion of the essay, I think it's also rather worth noting that I may have given some short shrift to Stevenson's attempts to be inclusive. While I did not come across the name of any collaborator for the work, it is now my understanding that Stevenson in fact worked with a native Samoan speaker to help publish this story originally in the Samoan language. So while it's still fair to say that he perhaps did not give due weight to the indigenous cultures to which he was trying to convey this story, he perhaps gave more weight to it than I had originally given him credit for. It also resulted in a interesting aspect of the story being that it was written in one language to the nature of a story that was translated and along with an article that I found particularly enlightening for the predecessor folk stories of the bottle imp I will also include a link to a dissertation which discusses some of the interesting aspects of literature as it is written with the intent that it be translatable or that it be perceived as translated. Stevenson overall, I believe, was very successful in his attempts to evoke a fairy tale feel of an ancient motif to a wider audience thanks to his fame as an author and to a new setting thanks to his affection for the Pacific. And of course, as so many great works of speculative fiction do, I believe that one of the most enticing and interesting aspects of the bottle imp is the fact that one is left thinking if given the chance what would you wish for if given the chance would you make the devil's bargain 
and purchase the cursed bottle? What would you wish for? And just how would you rationalize selling it on to the next poor soul? I am your host, Brian K. DeVille, and I hope you have enjoyed this weird and loathsome podcast. Incidentally, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review the show on whichever podcatching platform you found it. But first, I hope you will recommend the Weird and Loathsome podcast to any of your friends, loved ones, frenemies, enemies, or strangers who you believe may be in need of some additional horror and dread in uncertain times. If this episode or any episodes of the show has left you with any questions, comments, or compliments on your mind, please do feel free to reach out to me via email at briankdeville at gmail.com, the spelling for which is in the episode description. And thank you once again for listening to the Weird and Loathsome Podcast. <laughs>